Well, good morning and happy Sunday. We are sad we can't be with you in person, but we are glad to be able to worship you from our homes this morning. We are here in the new kids' building uh, recording the service for you. We're um, excited to be able to use it fully at some point soon, but that day is not today. Um, Anywho, we will be worshiping well this morning, and I'm about to read the text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, and I'll be reading from the CSB this morning. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while the great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, except a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. In the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, As Justin said, we are in the middle of this series uh, called uh, The Gospel of Jesus, and um, we're going to be looking this morning at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, and mainly answering this question, using those verses uh, as a basis for answering this question, and that is, is, what is it about familiarity with Jesus that can lead to a rejection of Jesus? And here in Luke chapter 4, if there is one thing that we know for sure that the, is that these people would have been familiar with Jesus. He's gone back to Nazareth. This was literally the town where he grew up. And we know a few different details about his growing up years. We know it's written in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, that the boy grew up, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. And then we have a little bit of that strange moment in chapter 2 where Jesus is 12 years old. His parents were in Jerusalem and they were there at the temple and they have left at this point and thinking that Jesus was with them traveling in this, in the, in this crowd together, thinking that he was still there. And then they realized they had this moment of like, we've all had the moment in Walmart where we have the kids running around and all of a sudden you realize you're missing one and it's like, who has the kid? I don't know. I thought you had the kid. There's all of a sudden this argument that begins and it's just insanity. And they they realize that Jesus is not with them. And they they go back to Jerusalem and they see that Jesus is actually there teaching with the rest of the religious leaders in the temple. And he asks them this question. It's like, 
don't you know that, that I had to be in my father's house? And their response, Luke writes, is very interesting. says, but they didn't understand what he was saying. And we find out in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But now he has now come back to Jerusalem some years later, to Nazareth some years later. In chapter 4, verse 16, this is literally the place it says that he was brought up, a place where, where he was nurtured. And they ask him to come and speak at their place of religious worship, at the synagogue. And as he goes in there, they are not only familiar with him, with Jesus, as him, the person. He is, they are also familiar with his message, what he was speaking. This was a message that definitely was familiar to them. It was a message of expectation. It was a message of hope, a message that went back generation after generation after generation, a message that gave the, his ancestors hope while they were in captivity. It was a message of hope, a message of a Messiah and a rescuer that was to come. And so as Jesus goes into the synagogue, he takes a scroll. And as he takes the scroll, he unrolls it and it's Isaiah 61. And if you know anything about Isaiah 61, if you know anything about their past, you know that if you're looking for a sermon to preach, this is literally like taking a softball, a slow pitch, and you're just putting it in there nice and slow, getting ready to take a home run hit. This is Isaiah 61. And he opens up the scroll. And as he reads it, it was not only a significant message to them in that time, this was a significant message in the past. It met their needs in the past. It met their needs in that moment. And it was going to be given a completely new, a completely new significance as Jesus read it that day and that it was pointing to him. So in Luke chapter four, verse 18, it quotes Isaiah 61, where it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke says there in verse 20 that he rolled up the scroll he gave it to the attendant, and then he sat down. And it's not like the scripture is read, and then all of a sudden you get up and you get on stage and the message is preached, and in that time it would be read, and then they would go and sit down, and the teaching and the explaining would begin. And then Jesus continues there in verse 21. He says, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled in who he was in himself. And we're going to see the, their response here in just a minute. It's like, you know, we like this whole idea of the Messiah. We like this deliverer. We like someone that's going to get Rome off of our back. We like someone that's going to come and release all of the people that have held us captive for so many years. We love this understanding. But all of this fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the one that actually grew up here, it's a little bit not quite their traditional understanding an idea that they were not familiar with, all of this pointing to Jesus. And we begin to see that familiarity with Jesus can often be, can often be a roadblock. Now, I uh, grew up at, at a time, and as I was growing up as a young man, a teenager, uh, during this time, uh, for several years, 
I would say that I, I grew up for a variety of different reasons apart from the church, and I, for a number of different years was wandering spiritually. And um, for, those, for those number of years, I'd like to say that I had just this incredible testimony, and, and I just, God brought me just from this, this terrible place back to himself, and it was just this radical thing. But for whatever reason, God just, he gave me this conscience, and I just seemed to respond to that conscience that he gave me, and for a number of years, God, by his grace, just, he saved me from so much, but the truth was, though it wasn't dramatic, I was not a follower of Jesus Christ whatsoever. I had a friend of mine at 17 years old that invited me to church, and invited me to church, and for the very first time, whenever I went to church that Sunday morning, I'll, I'll never forget it, someone got up on a stage, they opened a Bible, and they read the Bible, and they were preaching from the Bible, and speaking the Word of God to me in ways that I just could not quite even understand or comprehend, and all of a sudden, God just began to take all of the questions I had and began to make sense of them through the Word of God. And over a period of about eight months after I heard the gospel, I continued to seek out who God was, and as I tried to understand him more and more and more, as I read the word of God, as I was praying, as I was seeking understanding, as I was seeking counsel, and as I, as I watched the lives of those Christians that surround me, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know that people are, they're watching you. And over these eight months, finally coming to the end, they came to the point to where after I had all of these questions and I began to see that the word of God made sense of all of them. And it was the word of God that was actually the truth. And if everything in, in this book was actually true, the story of God, who Jesus was, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, if it was all true, and it made sense of not only my story, but it was the, the story that makes sense of everyone's story. And it was ultimately the truth. I came to the conclusion that I had to be in. And I drew the line in the sand. After eight months, I was baptized into Christ. I came to follow Jesus. I came to follow him. I, I came to know him. I, I surrendered to him. It was, it was all new. And for me, it's not the way it is for everybody, for, but for me, uh, going into the ministry was like one moment, coming to know Jesus and then coming to give my life to him and do whatever it was going to take to help people know and hear about this Jesus that changed my life. And so I went to this, uh, this spiritual and biblical fire hydrant known as Bible college, and I learned and I grew and I matured and I learned what it meant to serve God and I learned all of these new things. It was all new, and like all new things, they propelled me forward in such a fast-paced way. It was a youthful passion, a youthful passion based on the truth, but it was, it was a, passion, a youthful passion nonetheless. And like we know, all things that are new, over time, over 30 years, they can become familiar and there's a good side of this. I'm so glad that I've become familiar with Jesus. I'm so glad that whenever I read the word of God, it's not foreign to me. It has become more and more familiar. I'm so glad that whenever I take the bread and the cup each and every Sunday, that is familiar to me. I'm so glad that whenever I sing worship songs, they're not new. They're, they're familiar. And these truths have just had years and years and years of time to, to be a part of my life. 
I'm so glad that, that my faith is, it's familiar. But at the very same time, we all know the dark side of what it means to simply become familiar with Jesus. And so I'd like us to deal with this question this morning. Could a person, could a person become so familiar with Jesus? Could a person attend church weekly? Could a person serve in a ministry? Could a person give? Could a person be a pastor? Could a person go on a mission trip? At the very end, they reject him. And I think the answer, as we read through Luke chapter 4, the, the answer at least potentially has to be yes. And so what I would like us to do over the next few moments that we have together is to go through Luke chapter 4 and look at a few of the different characteristics of those people that not only knew Jesus, but people that were familiar with Jesus Yet at the very end, they ended up rejecting him. I would like us to watch. I would like us to listen. I would like us to see that if we see any of that in us, that we would take note, that we would be warned. Let that not be us. So what are some different characteristics of these people that are familiar with Jesus? The first thing is this. People that are familiar with Jesus often value their own agenda over Jesus' agenda. When the truth is, it is Jesus himself as God. It says in verse 18, one who is led by the Spirit, looking back to his baptism, looking back to his temptation. He is the one as king that projects his priorities and his kingdom on his followers and not vice versa. It's his agenda, not ours. And that's exactly what those people in Nazareth did not understand. They wanted an earthly king for themselves, Yet Jesus was bringing them something in a kingdom that was something completely different. A kingdom that was true, that was real, that was good news. A kingdom agenda that involved things like he mentions, Luke mentions in verses 18 and 19. Things like this that gives good news to the poor. That proclaims release to the captives. That gives recovery of sight to the blind. Setting free the oppressed. And these are all groups of people that Luke was uniquely concerned about. His agenda list would have included people with physical needs, with spiritual needs, outsiders, lepers that needed to be cleansed, demons that needed to be cast out, orphans and widows, those in need, those that were desperate. And those desperate people were on Jesus' agenda in his kingdom, and they should be on the church's agenda too. And it's no surprise whenever I've gone places to help after natural disasters. Uh, it's not like I've helped with a hundred of these, but I can think of at least two where tornadoes have happened and hurricanes have happened. And long after all of the media has left, long after the, the next story has become just the next hot issue, the people typically left in these places, all of the media trucks are replaced by old vans with church names on the side, and Christians. And Christians are there. Christians are there serving. Christians are the, one helping, help, the ones helping the needy. Christians are the one taking the lives of these, the, these people that have lost everything and beginning to put them back together again. That is Jesus' agenda, and it should be the church's agenda too. But at the very same time, we clearly have to understand this. It's not my helping. 
It's not your helping. It's not even the other people that we are helping or the people that we are serving that's clearly at the center of this agenda. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is Jesus and his kingdom. And right in the middle of all of this has to be the cross of Jesus Christ. And the root of all of these things, the root of oppression, the root of brokenness, is ultimately sin. And that's what Luke continues to, to write in the rest of Luke and throughout the book of Acts. It's not just the materially poor, it's those people that are poor in spirit. It's sin that oppresses us. It is sin that oppresses others. It's sin that blinds us, and it's sin ultimately that holds us captive. And we've got to understand that without the cross of Jesus Christ right in the middle of this agenda to deal with sin and without the cross of Jesus Christ as our ultimate motivation, I'm not quite, we have an agenda. Might be my agenda, might be your agenda. I'm just not sure that it's Jesus' kingdom agenda without the cross. Another thing about people that are familiar with Jesus is they are good at listening oftentimes lack obedience. And we see this in verse 20, the attention as Jesus is speaking there in that synagogue is given to Jesus. Those people that were surrounding him, clearly they were listening to him. In verse 20, it says that their eyes literally were fixed on him. This was clearly more than just a blank stare. Look, we're just sort of listening to you. And in verse 22, it seems like that there's a favorable response. It says that many people were speaking well of him. Actually, many people were amazed at what was going on there. And this is what happens when the good news is preached. When the gospel is preached, people respond favorably. I was reading an article this week, uh, the place where the church's growth is happening at a very exponential rate, the place where the gospel is growing the fastest right now in this world is actually in the Middle East, the country of Iran. And because that's what happens when the gospel goes out, the gospel grows and people respond to it. But that's not always this response. It's not as easy as gospel is preached, someone hears it, and then they respond positively. When you read a little bit further there in Luke chapter 4, you get to verse 22. It's not too long until you start to see the questions. They ask the question like, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, seriously, the one that we've been familiar with since his birth. And while many people did seem to respond favorably to the message that was spoken of Isaiah 61, there were those there that nodded their heads. They pretended to listen, yet they did not follow up by living in obedient life. And clearly, uh, they had the wrong motives, and Jesus knows our motives. He clearly sees this. He cannot be fooled. And it's like he, he says to them, okay, this is what you're going to tell me now. He gives them more of a riddle back. He says, look, what you're going to say next is this in verse 23. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do it here. And what they're saying is like, do it right here for us now. Prove yourself to us. And we all know the story of the plumber. It's really good at plumbing. Yet whenever you go to his house, it's, it's just a complete mess. We know the auto mechanic that can fix anything on everyone else's cars, yet whenever it comes to their car, it's a broken down 1984 Buick Regal, and they just make do. 
They're really, really good. They're very, very skilled at taking care of things in other places. Yet when it comes to their own, when it comes to taking care of this at home, it just doesn't seem to happen. And this is exactly what they're challenging Jesus with. Like, come here, prove it to us. All of the things that we've heard about in Capernaum, all these things that you've done, prove it to us right here and right now. You know, those are things that uh, people say that, that listen. People that listen, but they don't obey. I had a friend of mine uh, that was, was reaching out to a family and bringing some kids to church from this family and uh, brought them to church one evening. They went to church and on the way home, he was trying to have a conversation with them, talk about the night, talk about some different uh, things that they were talking about in the lessons and trying to get some sort of a spiritual conversation going on and wasn't having much luck. It's like most of us, as you're taking your kids home, usually the phones come out and put the headphones on and they're just driving home and the conversation is really not happening at all. When one of the kids that was in the car saw something that this guy had like in a cup holder or somewhere that was really near him. It was an eight ball from a pool table. And uh, he said to himself, this could be actually a great idea. He had kept this thing with him in his car. The eight ball was there because he had been meeting with a group of people that decided that they were gonna be reading Romans chapter eight. And as they were reading through uh, the book of Romans, came to chapter eight. And as they came to chapter eight, they realized that this was such an incredible chapter. It was filled with so much. What it means to, to follow Jesus, what it means to live a life in the spirit. And he thought, this is a great opportunity. I'm gonna share this with them. And he begins to explain what this eight ball was all about and how they gather together. And the person that, that memorized the chapter actually got the eight ball to remember this. And he begins to explain it to the kids. And he's really excited about it, talking about who Jesus is, talking about what it means to live a life in the spirit. And they, he realized that the kids, after very long, they were not paying attention and finally, a voice comes from the back seat, and he just says this, tell someone who cares. <laughs> you know, so, there's something about kids, something in them that when they're not listening, they just can't fake it. They can't pretend. And I don't know when this happens. I don't know what age this is as we become adults. It just seems like we become experts in faking it. Oh yeah, I'm listening. Oh yeah, I'm nodding my head. Oh yeah, I hear it. But in the very end, the answer is, no thanks. I'm not interested. And that's exactly what happens here. You had one group of people that Jesus is speaking to, their eyes were clearly fixed on him. Many responded to his message and then you had a completely different group of people. People that were familiar with him, and they listened, but they refused to obey. And one general truth I think we see here in Luke chapter 4, and something I've observed over the years in ministry is this, is that many times it's the outsider, it, those people that are unfamiliar with the message of Jesus, who actually hear, but not just, not just listen and hear, but they're the ones that respond in obedience. And so Jesus is seeing this in them and he draws them back to their history. And he tells them the story about your prophets. You remember Elisha. Well, you also remember the prophet Elijah. Elijah. 
And Elijah was in a situation where there was a famine and God has instructed Elijah at this point in 1 Kings to leave where he was and go to a different city, a city called Zarephath, a place where not many people that that were followers of Elijah's God lived. And God's instruction to Elijah was to go to that city and to find a widow with a son. And she was the one that was going to take care of his needs while he had no food. Elijah obeys, he goes to Zarephath and makes contact and has this encounter with this widow that has a son and she is in dire need and desperate need, looked down on by society, taking care of her son all on her own. And Elijah says to her, look, if you would just provide for my needs first, if you would just provide for me, God will provide for the both of us. And if you look in 1 Kings 17, you can read this story, but in verse five, it says this about the widow. It says, so she proceeded to do. I think that phrase is interesting there, to do according to the word of Elijah. And then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. She clearly obeyed. And the question that we have to deal with this morning is, are we listening? Are we living in obedience to what we've heard? And so for many of us, we need to take a step of obedience this morning. And for many of you, it might be a step of repentance back towards God. Maybe for some of you, the step of obedience that you need to take is back toward your spouse rather than pulling away from, you, from them. Maybe a step of obedience that you need to take is to once for all step across the line. You've heard the gospel. You've listened to it. You've been... like. You've been dealing with this, yet you really haven't taken a step across the line in obedience to follow Jesus. And something that you need to do is in obedience, put your faith, your trust, your hope in him and in him alone. Some of you need to take a step of obedience that means merely from just attending, attending a church on a Sunday morning to becoming a member Say, I want Sunnybrook Christian Church to be my church home. I want them to be my family. I'm committed to them and they are committed to me. Some of you need to take a step of obedience that is just like not just living a life of comfort, but taking a step of obedience toward sacrificial living for Jesus. If you're a college student or a high school student, maybe the step of obedience that you need to take is for years, you've been thinking about and planning for your future and all of your goals and all of the things that you want to do, or maybe you haven't been doing that at all. But the step of obedience that you need to take is maybe for once you need to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with the life that you have given me? What's the step of obedience that you need to take? And the good news of the gospel is this, is that by the grace of God, we can take the next step of obedience. We can by the grace of God. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, describes obedience obedience like this. He says it's spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort, and it is worth the effort by the grace of God. His commands are not too much for us. First John 5, 3 says this, that the commands of God aren't burdensome. Now, the final characteristic, of, final truth of people that are familiar with Jesus is this. People familiar with Jesus can reject him. 
And we see this in the response of the crowd that were listening to Jesus that morning as they begin to hear the story that Jesus was telling about Elijah and the widow and not just hear it, not just remember. That, that's like history. That's something that happened in our past. But they begin to realize, they begin to realize that he's saying like, it's the outsider that gets it, but those of you that are most familiar with me You're the one that misses it. And it was because you chose to be familiar with me rather than to be obedient to me. And their response clearly wasn't, thank you so much for that. I'm going to change my life in response to you and who you are. Verse 28, this is how the story finishes. It says, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. And Luke lays out the story almost foreshadowing what was going to be happen, happening not only in this moment, but what was going to be happening down the road in Jerusalem as he's about ready to be killed on a cross. And we read passages like this. Typically, we get caught up in the small details, the things that we have questions about. I read this week, the very end there, how was it that he passed right through the crowd and went on his way? And was very, very interested in this. And I read like five or six books, and it's very interesting that their response was this. He passed right on his way through the crowd, and and he went. Okay. We get caught up in the details, yet we miss the truth. The truth still stands that Jesus' death in that moment, it was not to be determined by them. It was going to be uh, through God's plan, in God's timing, when the Son of God was to die. Isaiah 53, 10, literally, it was the Lord's will to crush him, not ours, not theirs. And while this sacrifice would take place at one, one time, it was made once for all, And it still stands for you. And it still stands for me. The sacrifice of the cross still extends to us today. I don't know where you find yourself in that story. Maybe you're one that for some time has been following your own agenda and not a kingdom agenda. Maybe you for for some time have just been listening and listening and nodding and nodding and not obeying. You've not taken that step toward obedience, and the good news is that you can today. For those of us in Christ, literally, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. And it's by grace, through faith in him, by which that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross that's the basis and the power for our obedience. And that's good news. In each and every Sunday, we come together to remember that. We come together to remember not only Jesus' life, but we come to remember his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so as families at home this morning, we would like you to share in this time of the Lord's Supper. And we take the bread that causes us to remember about uh, Jesus and his body and his sacrifice for us. And then we take the cup 
And we thank Jesus for his blood shed for us, that it covers our sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you um, We thank you for your sacrifice. And God, uh, maybe for some, just this act right now of, of the Lord's Supper, it has become familiar in that over years and over time, those things that are new to us become familiar. And God, so help us not to take this, this meal with the wrong heart, with the wrong mind. God, might it renew us, might it renew our hearts and our minds and our souls. And God, we thank you so much for your death. It's in your name, amen. Well, as we come to the end of the service, we are going to close in prayer altogether, um, corporately. And so if you would, bow your heads and let's pray. God, today we are thankful for the opportunity to worship and to know you. This morning, we admit that at times, we've become complacent and familiar with you. So today, we ask you to realign us with your priorities. Might our agenda be your agenda, and might our listening and hearing be followed by obedience. Lord, we ask you for the Spirit's help for us to obey your word, and we might live in such a way that demonstrates your love and grace to a broken and hurting world, and might we do it for the honor of your name. Amen. Well, we love you and we miss you and we cannot wait to see you hopefully soon. Um, Know that if there's anything you need, just let us know. Uh, Contact us via email, call us or call the church office and somebody will get back with you. We would love to continue the conversation from today. So um, reach out to Drew or anybody on staff and we'd love to do that. We love you and we'll see you soon.